in this series. I'm basing it off of my book, but I'm just asking the Lord for fresh stuff um, using the general concepts, but asking him for a fresh word. So my face is in the Bible uh, every single day, and I'm going before the Lord to receive uh, something that I pray blesses your heart and helps you to receive from the Lord. So let's pray, and we'll dive right in. Father, we thank you for your goodness this morning and for the word of God. As we just heard, there's many around the world who are religiously in poverty and not having the opportunity to have the word of God in their hands. Thank you for the freedoms that we have here in this country. Thank you for the access that we have digitally and, and, and in traditional ways to study your word and hear from you. And now this morning in this service, as we set aside this time to hear from the word of God, we pray that you would speak to us collectively as a family, but Lord, also individually. Lead us in this time, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. When I was a teenager, I, I got uh, saved in a youth group when I was 15 years old. And immediately, uh, my youth pastor, who was the greatest youth pastor ever, he's up in McKinney now, and I'm glad he's in the wonderful nation of Texas. And <laughs> great guy, absolute uh, sweetheart, and taught me so much in his character. And he started a group just for boys in our youth group called Godly Beef. That's what we call ourselves. So Tuesday nights, we would play games, we would eat food, and we would study the Word of God together and learn from it uh, what would be best for teenage boys. It was a great time, and um, eventually uh, my youth pastor uh, switched gears, became the associate, and did wonderful work for that church. And as I graduated high school, began attending Bible college, and I was given the opportunity to take over as youth pastor for the very youth group I got saved in. So it was wonderful. It was meaningful to me. And I was 19 at the time, had no idea what I was doing, was barely reading the Bible for the first time. And so I did what every good novice youth pastor would do. I just copied everything my youth pastor did. Whatever he did and whatever I experienced in youth group, I did the exact same thing, including restarting Godly Beef. I remember I had several young boys that were probably freshmen, sophomore in high school as I ran that high school ministry. And I revamped it and started it up again on a Tuesday night. And what I would do is go right down the streets to a, a little grocery store and get the fried chicken combo. You, know, you get a two liter soda, eight piece fried chicken and some French fries. And I just made an announcement, anybody who wanted to come. So three or four boys showed up. We uh, ate some not healthy chicken, played some video games and started to study the word of God. Now, what's so interesting about the place where the church was is that right down the street, there was a very large apartment complex that had a section of it for lower income families. And so these lower income families had teenagers that all went to the local high school. So my three boys, they started to invite their friends who lived all in the same apartment complex. We called them the Windrift Boys. That was the name of the apartments, Windrift. And we lived there for a time as well. So every week, there was one or two or three new young men who were starting to come to our group to the point where we got to about 30 young guys uh, who were hungry and on fire to hear about the word of God. Now, these boys, these Windrift Boys, uh, they did not come from a church background. Uh, their parents still didn't go to church. They came to youth group, but their parents were not involved in church. Uh, there was domestic violence. Uh, one of the students uh, actually stayed with us over Christmas break because the domestic violence was so bad. Um, they were shoplifting. They were doing all kinds of sins, smoking marijuana. They were chasing after the girls. And so it was so funny because I began accountability with them. I said, all right, so we're going to sit down and we want to work at 
doing less of the sins that we're doing out there. Okay, boys? And they would get so excited when they say, I only cussed three times this week. Or I only looked at a girl three times this week. We're like, yeah, let's go. And then it was getting good. And one, one time they showed up and they brought the food. They surprised me and said, we'll take care of the food this time around. I'm like, oh, you guys are blessing me. I'm so proud of you. And when I went back to California last year, uh, I met with one of those students who's still a great friend of mine. He's now 30 years old, uh, and he was in my original youth group. And he goes, hey, remember that one time when we brought the fried chicken combo? I go, yeah. He says, we stole it. <laughs> I'm like, really? All these years, I was so proud of you, and then you told me you stole it, but... That was the first time, the first time that I experienced true Christian community. We were real. We were raw. We worked together in unison with one mind to the word of God and to transform our lives even down to our behaviors. And we weren't perfect and we did dumb things, but we were community. And today, as we have talked about with Wrecked by Love, I want to step into the topic of true biblical community. Thus far in our series, we have learned of what it looks like to encounter the Father aspect of God. Not Holy Spirit, not the Son, but Father. And as we say today, I've known you as a Father, but I've known you as a friend. You know, we see that God is good and we've learned how to in, encounter Him. Then if, if He is our Father, that means that we are sons and daughters. So the second week, we looked at what it looks like to embrace our identity, that we are children of God. And being children, that also means we have an inheritance. And so we kind of looked at everything that God has promised to us, all the blessing that he has given to us in the heavenly realms. Then last week, we looked at exiting our past, that we are new creations, and that God brought the Israelites out from in order to bring them into the promised land. He didn't just deliver them for the sake of deliverance. He led them into the promised land. And we looked at what would happen if the slumbering church would wake up. What type of revival could we experience in our nation if we stopped wandering around in the wilderness? And so today, we're stepping into biblical community, entering into community. And communities all over the Bible. I mean, from God himself and his nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I heard one preacher say that the atmosphere of heaven, the government of heaven is family. And God has a relationship even within the Trinity. And God loves us with the same intensity that God loves God. And then he created human beings. And when he created humans, he created Adam and Eve in a marriage. He created in proper community. Then we see that the word of God was given to us. But before the 1500s, this book wasn't read it in your prayer closet by yourself, individual sport. This was publicly read in community, discussed and argued and people putting in their opinions. It wasn't until the printing press was invented that we took this for our own individual study. Now, it's good still to meditate on the word of God day and night by ourselves. But there's something powerful when we get together in community to study the word of God. In Deuteronomy 6, it's known as the great Shema, the Lord, he is one, and, and so forth. We should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Then it goes on to say that you shall bind the word of God to your wrist, to your forehead. When you stand up, when you sit down, when you go out, be meditating on the word of God. 
And the Jewish people still take this literally where they'll bind little scrolls of Deuteronomy 6 on their wrist and you'll see the little box on their forehead and they have a certain method of wrapping that leather cord around. And even a mezuzah, which is this little box that they would nail to their door frame with the tiny scroll of Deuteronomy 6 on it. And it's to remind them that in every aspect of life and all that you do, there must be a focus on the word of God through community. A good friend of mine, he's a traveling evangelist. He was preaching at my church one time and he said, why do you think that the 120 were forced to be stuck in a room for all those days? And the church was quiet. And he says, because they had to learn how to become family before the Holy Spirit was deposited in their hearts. And I believe with all my heart that the church is supposed to be a family, not a seminary. That we are, we are to be together, good, bad, ugly, sad, together as community. I mean, can you imagine uh, if your family was forced to be locked in a cabin for 50 days or so? It, <laughs> it'd either be really pleasant or it'd be really bad and full of drama. But either way, y'all would be a lot closer. You would find out a whole lot about each other and have to work through some stuff. But we are called to live in family and be in community. And God's command of community, it remains the same. Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake the gathering and the assembly as some are in the habit of doing. And God's original command stays in what he created with the church in the book of Acts, which we're going to read in just a minute here. But the way God created the first church is still the way that we are to operate as the first church today. We don't copy what the church did 50 years ago, 100 years ago. We look to the first church as our example. I heard an illustration a preacher gave one time. There was a local a small town pastor who wanted to help one of the families in his church. And he went over. They were doing a construction project and expansion on their farm. So he goes on over. He goes, I don't, I don't know anything about construction, but I want to help. And he was so eager to lend a hand that finally the, the farmer, he gave him a task. He says, I have 100 two-by-fours. I need you to cut each one down to exactly five feet. He says, I could do that. So he lays out the first board and takes a tape measure and draws a line at exactly five feet. He cuts it. And then instead of doing another measuring job, he just takes that first board that was cut, lays it on the second, draws a line, cuts it. Then he takes the second board, puts it on the third board, draws a line and cuts it. And he does that on the fourth and on the fifth and on the sixth and on all the way to the hundred. <laughs> now, you know that if you don't properly measure, you know, they say uh, measure twice, cut once. But if you use that one board that was previously cut, there's always just a tiny little bit more. You're off by just a tiny bit. So by the time he got to the hundredth, there were some boards that were almost six feet long. He was off that bad. Now, what ends up happening is that you have the church of the first century, then the second, then the third, then the fourth, all the way into where we're at today in 2022. And we keep looking only back to the last hundred years instead of the very first, the very first board. In, in Mark chapter 10, someone comes up to Jesus and says, you know, Moses permitted a certificate of divorce. Can I get rid of my wife? She's annoying me, right? And Jesus says, no, Moses permitted a certificate of divorce because of your hard hearts. But from the beginning, God made the male and female. What God has joined together, let no man separate. 
So Jesus was even saying it doesn't matter about the society, the culture, and where this has come in over 2,000 years. It's about what was it like from the very beginning. And so when I think of the church and when I think of community, I want to think about what was it in the beginning. That's the standard in which I compare Southgate Fellowship to. Are we a biblical community that's doing what we were called out to be? We're all called to be in community, which community really is friendship, but community could be scary. You know, you may have come from a church that hurt you or a pastor who betrayed you or was in a small group where they gossiped about you or maybe your personality type, you have social anxiety or you just don't like crowds and so forth. We need to understand that community doesn't mean we know every single person in the church. It's about quality in our relationships, not quantity. You can have a small, tight-knit group of friends that you call community that you're walking life together, but Christianity is never meant to be an individual sport. Christianity is called to be a family, and it doesn't matter how big your family is, but we are called to be in community. We're called to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're called to mourn with those who mourn. We're called to cry with the pastor when his titans shoot themselves in the foot and lose the playoff game last night. Help me, Jesus. We're a community. You cried for me, and I think all the text messages y'all sent me, that, that made it better. It made it better. Even football. We can be community with the smallest things in life. We are called to community. So let's take a look at what this looks like from the Bible. If you have the word of God with you, whether in written form or digital form, we're going to Acts chapter 2. And if you forgot both, we'll have it up on the screens. We're going to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And this is the very famous portion of scripture where the Holy Spirit is given and the church is birthed. Beginning in verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. A lot of churches will skip the part about the supernatural. I don't. But what I see here is that people are gathering in house to house. They're breaking bread together, sharing a meal together. It's intimate. They're living life together. They're consistently getting together on a, on a basis where they want fellowship. And it says they were feeling a sense of awe. I mean, as a community, are we working towards being in awe of what God is doing? When he opens the doors to plane tickets and visas, you know, when he provides the home that we need, when he provides the job that we've been searching for, when he heals the body and the pain is gone, are we constantly looking to what God can do so that we can be in a spirit of awe? Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone would have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. So even though they were born again Christians, they were still Jewish. So they did all the normal Jewish stuff, went to synagogue on Saturday, followed all the festivals and all the traditions, but every day, with their Christian brothers and sisters, they broke bread and they continued to meet. And then finally, verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord 
was adding to the number day by day, those who were being saved. So just by being a community of people, living life together, enjoying each other, that in itself was a witnessing tool that allowed people to say, what an amazing family. Look at all that God is doing. I want to be a part of that. And that's my hope for Southgate. I'm not the type of pastor that wants to market stuff and brand stuff and, and just go above and beyond hanging door knockers and so forth. If you catch fire for the Lord, people will come watch you burn. If we're a community of people who love each other and there's love and grace and family and joy and laughter in this house of the Lord, the people from this neighborhood are going to want to be a part of that. Deep down inside, we all crave community. We crave intimacy. We crave a place where we can belong. And we crave people that we can worship the Lord with together. Then uh, very briefly, I'm going to switch over to John chapter 13. Just two quick verses, so you don't have to turn there if you don't like. But John chapter 13, verse 34, this was etched in metal on my office wall for quite some time. It says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how can people tell that you're a disciple of Jesus? Is it because you have a Bible degree? Is it because you're a missionary and go across the world? Is it because you've memorized certain passages of scripture? Is it because you're seen at church every single Sunday? Or do they know that you love Jesus by the love that they feel from you? Love needs to be the core and the base of community. So in your notes, I have a couple bits of encouragement for us on what community can accomplish within the believer and within the church. So if you're taking notes, the first thing is that community produces Christ-likeness. Community produces Christ-likeness. Now, we should be convinced that community is something we should do because of how much scripture is in the word of God that talks about being together in community and in unity and with one mind. But see, it's not just learning. It's not just coming to church. It's about being a community together that helps us to be Christ-like. Jesus could have easily taught his disciples in a classroom setting, at a pulpit, at a, at a missionary training school. He could have had them come Monday through Friday to sit down, learn the word of God. Here's how you pray for the sick. Here's how you disciple. Here's how you cast out demons. He could have taught them in a comfortable, normal way that you and I are very familiar with, the classroom setting. But Jesus didn't. Jesus' way of discipleship was, I'm moving into your house, and you're going to live with me, and we're going to do everything together. I mean, you disciple your children and your grandchildren without even knowing it, just by being around, just by being available, just by giving an example, and the way you respond and react to things is teaching your children, is, is an example to your neighbors. I mean, we can really disciple people just by living and doing life with people. And we have an impact whether we know it or not. I remember working with a youth pastor one time. We were at the beach in Southern California, lots of homeless people. And we were just there doing a, um, a kind of like an outreach, feeding people and barbecuing and that kind of stuff. And there was one homeless man who was sitting on a grass embankment and he was sleeping. And when he looked to his rear end, it was soiled very, very badly, very badly. And my heart broke for him. And then this youth pastor that I was um, sitting next to started laughing, started pointing. And with students and other Christians started to make fun of this poor homeless man who had soiled himself. 
And after a few moments, I went over and ministered to him, gave him some money and so forth, uh, because I didn't want my kids to see that's how you treat homeless people. See, your reactions, your mistakes, the good things that you do, your love is a great way to show somebody how to love the Lord or not to love the Lord. But we find Christ's likeness in community because we spur one another. And Hebrews 10, 24 says, let us spur one another to do good deeds in community. When you're surrounded by a group of Christians who love the Lord, you're gonna be challenged to do good things for the Lord. You're gonna be challenged and motivated to go off and do things for God and for other people, to serve them in love. And that word in the Greek, spur, it's not like, hey, you should really, hey, have you ever thought of? No, it's like when that kid is too afraid to go in the pool, and so the uncle kicks him in to show them, hey, that's how you swim, right? That's what that word means. It's like aggressively, you're going to do it whether you like it or not type of a deal. So we are to spur one another. We are in community supposed to help people with great passion to be just like Christ in this world. You know, on Wednesday night, we talked about uh, relationships. And one of the things we covered last Wednesday was on how to honor people in your relationships, whether that's marriage or your friendships or your neighborhood. We are to honor people. And honor means that you call out the best in somebody. And that can be accomplished two ways. It could be accomplished with words of praise. Oh, you're so amazing. Wow, you're so talented. That's so great. Keep on, right? Showing the best in somebody. It could also mean you're too good to be doing that, honey. Why are you, you know better than that, but in love saying you're too good. Here's your identity. Here's who you are in God. Here's how you're acting. How can we get you back up to what you are called to be? We are in communities supposed to lead each other into Christ likeness. The second thing is that community helps in our weaknesses. Community helps in our weaknesses. I got a dear friend Pastor Chris in uh, Northern California has got a beautiful family. And after two daughters, uh, the Lord blessed them with a son. After a couple of years, unfortunately, the son got a very rare uh, cancer in the blood. And we all prayed. And for nine months, we we linked arms and and prayed and interceded. But unfortunately, uh, he ended up passing and going home with the Lord. And that was over 10 years ago. And I remember walking that through with my friend and my heart breaking. I mean, my son was roughly the same age at that time. And my heart was breaking for him. And, and I remember having lunch with him a few months after his son had passed. And I said, how you doing? You know, um, what's different? What, what's happening? What, is there anything I could do? And he goes, you know, the beauty of my church, which he had just uh, planted a church two years uh, prior. He said, they uh, covered the pulpit for me for a year. They said, we're going to pay your salary for a year. We're going to provide you with uh, grieving counseling. You're never going to have to cook a meal for the next year. And if there's anything else that you need, including they gave him a truck, uh, they said, we're going to be here for you. And he was able and afforded the opportunity to heal because a group of people in his church got together and said, we're going to carry you through this season. So when you're in community and you're not fighting alone and, and you invest in community, one of the beautiful blessings we get is that we are, as it says in Galatians 6.2, able to carry one another's burden. By staying isolated or closed off or hardened to other people, you miss out on the opportunity of revealing your heart to them and giving the opportunity to bless one another. Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We need each other. And my question is, do you have people in your life you can be that real and honest with? 
Do you have people in your life that you know you can pick up the phone and they will show up on your doorstep? And again, it doesn't have to be many, but do you have a few that you know, I would do anything for them, they would do something for me? And let me encourage you, a, a great way if you don't have that right now is to start a small group, to get a couple people together and just start building history together in a small group. I have about three people that I regularly text that aren't part of my church, don't even live in Texas, and I just text them all the time or call them all the time. And sometimes I can tell them things I wouldn't tell my friends. Sometimes I can tell them things because they're so far removed from my situation, I can really open up and they can really pray for me and bless me. And I've had those relationships for decades. My mentor is still my mentor. My first youth pastor is still my youth pastor. And I can call on some of these people, even though they're not physically with me, I have community. And we need that to help each other in our weakness. And then finally, the last thing here is that community strengthens our witness. Community strengthens our witness. Uh, when I graduated high school, as I said before, my mom used me as an excuse to go on a trip to Hawaii. She always wanted to go, and I was like, okay. But she used me and said, oh, we got to celebrate. You graduated high school. We're going to Maui. So just me and my mom, my dad didn't want to go. Me and my mom, we flew to Maui. My mom wanted to do everything Hawaii had to offer. When I go on vacation, that means I want to sleep in. I want to watch movies. I want to eat everything in sight. I want to check out the sites. I just want to veg out. Not my mom. My mom's waking up at 5.30 in the morning. Hey, I got snorkeling booked. I said, you have snorkeling booked, not me. I'm sleeping in. She ended up finding another lady who was there by herself and became best friends with her over that trip. And that lady did everything with my mom and I relaxed at the beach. Right? But one thing they got me to do, the both of them, they, they teamed up on me. They, uh, uh, they beat me up, um, was to go horseback riding. I'm not a horseback rider ever. And it was a three-hour tour in the mountains. My mom got that Budweiser Clydesdale horse, and I got this little burro from Tijuana that was like this big. The worst, and that thing, I mean, it, it would veer off, and I'm smacking my head, my hat's flying because of the branches. Hated that horse, man. <laughs> Finally, the tour guide had to come to the side of me and walk with me because that horse was having a bad day. He, he didn't want to be a tour guide that day. So the tour guide had to keep him in check and keep him in line. So now me and the tour guide are at the very back because his horse kept having to stop and go to the bathroom like 50 times. So me and the tour guide are having this conversation. And uh, he's, you know, talking to me about Hawaii and talking about all this stuff. And he goes, yeah, it was so great until those darn missionaries came over here. They ruined everything. And he's just going off on missionaries this and missionaries that and how they're impeding on our culture and da da da. And so we're walking, we're walking. He's like, so what do you do? I said, um, I'm a pastor. He's like, sorry. <laughs> I was like, no, it's not a problem. That's how you feel. That's how you feel. All that to say is we have a long way of improving our reputation as a church. We're not known for our love. We're known for our judgments. We're known for our criticisms. We're known for our gossip. We're known for our hypocrisy. We're known for our anger. We're known for so many things. But as we read earlier, John 13, we should be known by our love. That's how they should know that we are believers. And so when we're in community, it helps us 
to grow our witness because we're exemplifying true love and what real, honest, godly community looks like. And that takes time and that takes intention and that could be messy sometimes, but we have to show the world a demonstration of God's love. I believe we owe the world a demonstration of God's love. And you don't have to be perfect and you don't even have to be trained. Acts 4.13 says that they observed the disciples that these untrained, uneducated men, they were in awe of what they were doing, and they could tell that they had been with Jesus. In that community, those disciples had a community where even though they weren't perfect, they didn't have any education or uh, formal training, they looked at them and said, wow, the love that they have, that could only have come from Jesus Christ. Do they see that in us? Do they observe it? And when you get together with community, you get the opportunity to be spurred into doing those good deeds of love to other people around you. I'll close with this. Uh, When I was, um, uh, gosh, 10 years ago, we were on a trip uh, to the first time going out to see my in-laws in Southeast Georgia. And we were traveling around. We saw all the great sites of Hazelhurst, Georgia, 4,000 people, one traffic light, a Walmart with only one door literally one door. And uh, they took us to the Okefenokee Gator Farm. I don't, I don't know if you've ever walked 10 feet away from a 15-foot alligator with no fence. was an experience. Um, but one day, we ended up going to Jacksonville, Florida, and um, we went to a Red Lobster, my favorite. And we're having lunch there, and this waiter comes over to us, and he's just awesome. Uh, he's fun. You know, you know, there's waiters who like, I love being a waiter, and they show that. So we're having a blast with this guy, and, and then he comes around again after he brings us our order, and my son, who's probably six, seven at the time, he looks up at this guy, and he goes, hey, do you believe in God? And I'm over there like, I didn't even, I'm a pastor. I didn't even say that. And here, my little kid, I'm like, ooh, where is this going? And so the waiter, he could be offended, who knows, or he can brush him off. He goes, heck yeah, I believe in God, bro. And then my little boy, he says, good, because I like you a lot, and I know I don't live here, and one day I want to see you in heaven. And, and I had the confidence that if that guy said, no, I don't believe in God, then my son probably would have said, well, you need to. Here, hold my hands. Let us receive the Lord here right now in the name of Jesus. How did he learn that? Did he go to school for it? Or did he see his parents? Did he go to church and see people talking about this need? Did he hear about heaven and how wonderful it's going to be? Was he convinced at a young age that Jesus is the only way? One day he'll be in heaven. He didn't learn that from a book, from school, from anything else than being in a community of people. If I can encourage you to do anything in life is to get the word of God on your heart and to get with people who love it as much as you do. And we can see powerful things happen when in one mind, We come together, all of our messes, all of our imperfections, but darned and determined to go after the Lord and all that he desires for us. Let us pray, family. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, and thank you for what we're experiencing in this series. Reminded again that you're not just God Almighty, but your Father and your friend. You've called us your own beloved children. You've given us an inheritance and you've allowed us to walk away from our past, to walk away from our sin, to walk away from what holds us down. And you told us not to go out into this world by ourselves. God, you said when you created Adam that it was not good that he was alone, but you brought a helper, you brought community. And I thank you for the community here at Southgate and thank you, God, that we are a family that loves each other and loves you. And we're gonna look to you, God, to add to our numbers. We're gonna look to you to bring us family members. We're gonna trust and follow after you and all that you 
desire and will for Southgate. Thank you for my friends here. And as we go off and enjoy a beautiful Sunday and we go about and the different things that we want to accomplish this week, may you bless us by going forward in your joy, in your love, in your power, in your truth, your presence. We love you, Lord, today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this family. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all be blessed and have a wonderful week.